Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Yes, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hello, Cambridge. We hope you've had a lovely Christmas and are enjoying the season known as Twixmas between Christmas and New Year. My name is Yozzy Osman and I am very delighted to bring you a special Bums on Seats where we have our reviewers counting down our top 12 films of the year. Today I have 10 reviewers ready to talk about these films, including myself, Alistair Ryder, Victoria Eyre, Ashley Capaldi, Mark Liversidge, Dave Riley, Lorcan O'Neill, Simon West, Rowan Lamb, and last but by no means least, Emma Marchant. Uh, they've all submitted a top 10 of the year and uh, that covered 48 films in total but now we have whittled it down to the top 12 so we haven't got a lot of time we've got to get straight into it and uh, starting us off at number 12 Number 12, and by the way, we are recording this slightly before the show, so you will not be seeing anything like Cats today. Alistair told me to mention that. Yeah, I'm, I'm saddened because it would have been my number one. I know, um, I know. I haven't seen it at the time of this recording, but I know it's going to be my number one. I know, but we've got to talk about what's at number 12. So we've got Pain and Glory, directed by Pedro Almodovar, uh, about a film director reflecting on the life choices that he has made, and starring Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. Uh, as well as many others. So I've got in the room now, I've got Alistair and Victoria who have both seen this and I believe you both submitted this in your top tens. Tell us why. Definitely. Um, So I'm a big fan of Pedro Almodovar and I think that a lot of critics have described this as his most, you know, his most personal film to date but a lot of his films throughout the years have been sort of self-reflective like a director looking back on his career. Uh, Ten years ago, he made a film called Broken Embraces, again with Penelope Cruz, which was, uh, again, about a former film director looking back on his career. And the film within a film was a fil- was a remake of one of Pedro Almodovar's own early films. Uh, and Pain and Glory is the most nakedly um, self-autobiographical to date, even though there are you know certain things that he has invented for the purposes of... Uh, creating a good drama uh he has never taken heroin for example is uh, something that we can safely put on the record there um uh just in case our lawyers are listening but it is uh, just a wonderful film about the creative process it's one that really gets into the mind space of a director's own relationship with his previous films and the things within his life that continue to inspire him as he moves forward and makes more it's a lot of times directors making films about the process of making films is really pretentious and i think what Dovar does really well here is he strips that away and just looks at the human elements that inspire him the things that happen in people's lives that 
caused them to write, that caused them to direct, that caused them to share their stories. And he does it in a way that's very moving, uh, is very funny at times, and leads up, you know, in this blend of uh, history and present day into possibly the best final scene of 2019. Victoria, you've also submitted this into your top 10. Do you agree with what Alistair's just said? I actually completely agree. But unlike Alistair, I, um, this is my first like proper introduction to Al Modavar films. But after this, I went straight off to and watched Talk About My Mother, or Bad Education, which also is a film that is about filming. It's like, mm. he, it seems something that he's specialising in. And what you said about... The humanity is something that Almodovar like captures in every sense of all of his characters that he puts on screen. They're always they keep, they're quite delicate in the way that they think and they move on screen, but they're always loud and they have great humor and great romances. And this is why like I was so inspired by just to see the Spanish um, to delve more into Spanish cinema after this. So a great recommendation from both of you. Thank you very much. That is our number 12 of 2019, Pain and Glory. And it's time for number 11, which is the favourite directed by Yorgos Lanthimos uh, about Queen Anne and uh, her best friend, Lady Sarah, who uh, their relationship is influenced by the arrival of a new servant called Abigail. It stars Olivia Coleman in an Oscar-winning performance along with Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz. Uh, I, I actually forgot this came out this year because it was so early in the year, wasn't it, guys? It was it, a New Year's Day release. It was, it yeah. was, but it has featured into our top 12. And joining me in the room, we've got Alistair, Emma and Rowan to talk about this one. Rowan, tell us why you voted for the favourite. Well, um, I <laughs> this film, I think, more than any other this year, I'm going to contradict myself later, I'm sure, was so visually stunning compared to what I was expecting it to be that I it just blew me away in the cinema. The super wide-angle lens shots of them walking down corridors, the production design was so wonderful, all of the performances were fantastic. I love Olivia Coleman. We all do. I mean, yeah, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Olivia, if you're statement. listening, yeah. national treasure. She is. She really is. And I've always... I've always um, I've always loved her. I think she's just fantastic. She's also allowed to sort of stretch her comedy chops in this a little, I think, which um, really just elevates the film. Emma Stone is fine. <laughs> I think it's Emma Stone's best performance. Oh, abso- no, absolutely. Yeah. Three, it's not it's... her movie, though. It's really like, I think, I think... It's partly Rachel Weisz's movie as exactly, well. Exactly, indeed. Do think, yeah. Yeah. If yeah. we had to like rank the three of them, I would probably put Rachel Weisz first. I think she's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yes. And yeah. it's honestly the most subtle of the three, strangely. It's one that it wasn't until the second time I saw the film that it really crept up on me just how phenomenal the work that she's doing in this film yeah. is. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the talk is about the performances. Is is that the main thing that this film has to offer, Emma? It, it wasn't for me. I think following on from The Lobster, which is still probably my um, most favourite Lathamos film, and me then too. The Killing of the Sacred Deer. But this is almost him moving towards the mainstream a little bit more. I mean, for example, my in-laws went to go and see this, and I can't imagine they would have gone to go and see either of the other two. So I think the di- <laughs> you know, it, it's a very, he has such a distinct voice. And in this case, I think it all came together to make a really clever and interesting period piece. Yeah. And I also want to say, as much as it is 
three just of the meatiest roles for women you can imagine. And, you yeah. know, there's a lot of talk about how, particularly women who get to certain ages or whatever, there's no great roles out there for them. And this is completely contradicted by this. But also, Nicholas Holt yep. in a world's oh, most Oh, he was brilliant. Wigs. I've just remembered. Thank what? you. Oh, what an absurd. Brilliant. And yeah. I would never have thought he'd be that. I just, I wouldn't have thought about him. in, in, in And so that, yeah, I want to give him a little yeah, shout it's out. Yeah, it's a period piece for people who don't like period pieces. And I just want to say, one of the most joyous moments of the year was at uh, Ashley's... Uh, Oscar party um, in the early hours of the morning. We were all expecting Glenn Close to win Best Actress and to see Olivia Colman waltz onto the stage oh, yeah. in tears, give one of the best Oscar speeches of all time that just ended with her screaming Lady Gaga into the <laughs> distance. Uh, that really, you know, that really made the Oscars for me. And uh, But it's a shame that that was the only Oscar the favourite one because it was uh, probably the best film nominated last year. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, film. it was it a was delight. Yeah. Wonderful uh, performances all around and a great film by Yorgos Lanthimos. That is our number 11, The Favourite. And now it's time for our number 10 film of the year. Into the top 10, another early release from 2019. It's Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? about the author Lee Israel struggling to get her work published. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. And I think it's quite a moving addition to our top 12. I've got two very big fans in the room with Mm -hmm. me today. Ashley and Rowan both rated it very highly in their top 10s. Ashley, tell us why. I think it was my number one, actually. It was. um, I rate films based on whether I remember them, how I feel about them a long time after I've seen them. And I remembered this story. I remembered the characters. And I loved them for a long, long time after. And it was, I'm going to say unique, but it's based on truth. So it's the truth is stranger than fiction. But it's, I am just a story complete falling over for it. But it also looks great. It looks like a Bob Dylan music video or something. Like the wet, grimy city kind of scapes I loved that and it's so wonderful to see people like Melissa McCarthy we were just talking about the favourite and women of a certain age who don't get good roles and for her to be able to do things like bridesmaids and be a great comedic actress and then we give her roles like this and she shows that oh I can do this too we don't see that enough and I miss Richard E. Grant one of the yeah. one of the UK's what finest actors in that film but I mean both of them were wonderful but I, I was particularly pleased to see Richard E. Grant because I feel like I hadn't seen him for ages no it does feel like he's been I mean he's been here and there he was in Logan for a minute he was in you know he's been in a couple of films but this to see him stride out and really you know, stretch his legs in terms of acting was just wonderful. He, you know, quite rightly earned a nomination for an Oscar. So did Melissa McCarthy, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was a surprise nomination for yeah. him. Um, and I don't think he'd ever been to the Oscars, no, had he not? he was so sweet at being nominated. It, like, it warmed my heart to see how well he reacted to being nominated mm. because lots of actors and, well, directors, producers, anyone... They can be sort of a bit snooty about the Oscars, especially if they've been nominated a few times. But mm. just the sheer joy to see Richard E. Grant being delighted to just be mm-hmm. nominated. Mm-hmm. And no one could deny that he earned that nomination. He did. Um, but that's not, you know, we're leaning, talking about him a lot. Melissa McCarthy absolutely was earned brilliant. her nomination as well. And it's funny you mentioned her being funny in other roles because I found this film hilarious. She and is the two dark. Of them, the two of them dry. just bouncing off each other. I'd love to see them do something else one yeah. day because they clearly have 
a wonderful chemistry yeah. of the two actors. I loved the bouncing off as well because this isn't as not as a member of that community, but from the outside, it looked like a great representation of gay characters. Because whenever you have a gay character in a film, you only really focus on the romantic relationships that yeah. they have. Like, oh, here's our gay person. Who were they going out with? But they know other people. They have friends. <laughs> yeah. And it was a beautiful relationship between the two of them, and I loved the exploration of that outside of their sexuality. Absolutely. which I don't think you get a lot with gay characters on screen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, these two absolutely love it. Uh, I also saw it earlier this year and I think it's a wonderful film. So please do, if you get a chance, uh, catch Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is our number 10. <laughs> Coming up, we are now talking about our number nine film of 2019, which is Jordan Peele's Us, his follow-up to the uh, acclaimed Get Out, which came out, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, I don't know, everything blurs in my mind, uh, but starring Lupita Nyong'o as Adelaide, who returns to the setting of a traumatic experience from her childhood. Uh, Joining me in the room, so five of our reviewers put this in their top ten. I've got here Ashley, Lorcan, Emma and Mark, and myself, who've all seen it. Uh, Mark, Tell us why you popped it into your top ten. I popped it in. I'm a big lover of horror films anyway. And uh, I think Jordan Peele has got this real knack for getting under your skin. Uh, This is one of the creepiest films I can remember seeing in recent years. Uh, The the highlight has to be probably Lupita Nyong'o's incredible dual performance. uh, Because she's so good both being normal and also being incredibly creepy. Uh, But she's not by any means the only thing worth seeing about this film. Uh, Jordan Peele just has that knack of of understanding what what just freaks us out a little bit. And uh, considering how revered Get Out was when that came out, you know, this was his follow-up to that, Um, a lot of people were sort of comparing the two films. How does this stand as as a follow-up? I think for me, the the most exciting thing about Us was the evolution of Jordan Peele, because I thought Get Out was good. I didn't think it was great. I think the humour wasn't very well mixed in. I think I feel like the plot stopped and then there'd be some humor and then it get back to the plot. Um, whereas this, the humor is a lot better mixed in. It's more appropriate to the context of the film. Um, I really loved the legitimate kind of Twilight zone feel of the story. Um, and I, I, I'm very excited to see what Jordan Peele does next because he's, from watching even just, if you watch like a lot of sketches from the Key and Peele show, uh, you can tell that he's very into film. He knows structure and he knows character. And so it's lovely to see him just embrace it and make a film that really shows how strong he is with these these concepts in film. Uh, and I'm, I'm just really excited to see what he does next. Um, Emma, uh, I know that you put this into your uh, top ten as well. A lot of the talk about this film is around the performances, particularly as Mark mentioned, Lupita Nyong'o, but also uh, Winston Duke. There's a really great uh, performance by Elizabeth Moss. Tell us a little bit about what you thought uh I'm kind of the opposite from Mark in that I hate horror movies normally. And I remember really clearly we all had to go and see this and keep each other company. We all agreed we'd go on a big bums we did, yes. viewing because we were all terribly terrified. But... Um, I think the visual motifs in it are incredible as well. I think you know, did, 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 did this, this whole idea that it was happening when Hands Across America was happening as well, and there, there, it lends itself to some brilliant, brilliant set pieces. The performances are great. It's a clever story. It's a tight story. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it just was, a, like, as Lorcan was saying, for a second, second film, 
really, really well done. Very good. And Ash, you put this at your number four. Final word from you. I love horror films and I think we've forgotten what scares us. We're used to the slasher films of the noughties. We're used to blood and gore and we think that's scary. But he's reminded us, Jordan Peele, this is what really scares us. And I don't want to give too much away. Just go and be creeped out. Try and see it. Wonderful. Thank you very much, everyone. That is our number nine film of the year, Us. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats and we have a very special show today where we are counting down our top 12 films of 2019 and we are about to talk about our number eight film. And our number eight film of 2019 is If Beale Street Could Talk, directed by Barry Barry Jenkins uh, as a follow-up to Moonlight, which obviously won Best Picture, I think, in 2017. Uh, It's about lovers Tish and Fonny uh, and how their lives are changed when Fonny is falsely accused of rape. Uh, I've got a few people with me in the in the studio. I've got Mark. I've got Simon, who both put it into their top tens. I've also got Dave, who I don't think you put it into your top ten, but you have seen it. Honourable mention. Honourable mention. Yeah. Um, Mark, you placed this very high in your top ten. Please tell us why. I placed it second in my list this year because I just think it is one of the most beautiful films I can remember seeing. Uh, always when somebody makes a film, a, a debut film, uh, that comes to prominence like Moonlight, you worry what the next one's going to be like. Uh, but actually, uh, if Bill Street could talk, is as good, and that is high praise indeed. Uh, all-round cast of incredible performances, uh, but an incredible score, uh, just a, a beautifully told story, uh, and just some gorgeous, gorgeous uh, images as well. Um, and it's a film that stayed with me for a long time after I saw it. I still find when I talk about this film that I just feel quite emotional. It is a powerhouse of a film, I think. Um, Simon, you placed it, I think, fifth in your your top ten list. What, yeah. what about it did you really engage with? Um, I remember going into it thinking it can't be as good as Moonlight. Um, nobody can follow up a film like Moonlight was the second film that well and I was just stunned throughout um, the performances the acting the the dialogue it just felt so weird, uh, real um, the story about you know true love and it was just such a beautiful film it's it's the kind of film that you know it just transcends the film going experience when you can just come out and just feel so good and so happy that you've watched a film like that mm. and and Dave it was an honourable mention for you. Yeah, I, it didn't quite crack my top ten, but I just remember going to see it and it, it felt like the film kind of put me into a trance while I was watching it and I was just drifting along. And, you know, it, it's a story with a number of, you know, difficult emotions that you experience as well, but at no point did it make me feel uncomfortable in having to watch and take part in the experience and I can see why a lot of people have rated it very highly and now I'm feeling a bit guilty I did put it outside don't feel guilty your top 10 is your top 10 and you're here to talk about it anyway um I think I think you'd all agree with me when we talk about Barry Jenkins as a director that after Moonlight and this very excited to see what he might do next 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he's, he's shown he's able to tell different kinds of stories as well and, and draw wonderful performances. Uh, I, I think the, the performance which gained the most attention in the awards season was Regina King, who mm-hmm. picked up the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, but everyone in this is is absolutely superb. Um, I, I even love the little Dave Franco cameo that pops in halfway through, just, yes, just yes. completely randomly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know, it, it is a very different set of stories. Uh, there's, there's different narratives going on here within the story itself, uh, as the, the, the two lovers and their broken relationship, broken by by circumstance rather than anything else. Um, and you know, it's it's just absolutely heartrending at moments as well. Um, Barry Jenkins has a real knack for for tapping into the human condition uh, and putting it up on the screen. I think that's a really great way to to sum up the film. Thank you, everybody. That is our number eight film, If Beale Street Could Talk. And we're now coming to our number seven film, which is Under the Silver Lake, directed by David Robert Mitchell and starring Andrew Garfield. So uh, Alistair Lorcan and Victoria are in the room with me now. They are the three reviewers that both both all uh, popped this into their top 10, but they popped it very highly into their top 10, which is why it's got such a good placement um, in the top 12. Let's... I haven't seen this film, so I don't even know what it's about. Lorcan, can you tell me? Sure. Uh, tell so us. It's um, about Andrew Garfield plays this... Well, I think me and Alistair disagree about this slightly, about how much you're supposed to like or dislike... Um, uh, the point is we both love the film. Yeah, that's the, that's the important the thing here. Yeah. Mm. So he's... Um, Andrew Garfield's the main character, and he's kind of a layabout, doesn't really know what to do with his life. He's kind of a sleazebag. Uh, and because he doesn't really know what to do with his life, he kind of falls down this rabbit hole of codes, and he's convinced that there are all these secret codes around the world, and they, they say different things to different people, and he becomes obsessed with finding out what they mean to give his life some meaning. Um, and I think uh, A24 have gotten... A24, the distributor for the film, got a lot of flack because they showed it around some festivals. It got some very bad reviews. Uh, it was genuinely, generally disliked by critics. Um, and they kind of buried it. They kind of buried it on the kind of lower-tiered uh, video-on-demand services. And then, But then once everyone actually saw it, they were like, oh, wait, this is actually like easily one of the best films of the year. Why did you bury this? It's amazing. And I think it fell victim to a kind of terrifying... Uh, terrifying point of view that came about this year of people judging filmmakers by the main characters where it's like oh if you make a film about a kind of disreputable character that means the filmmaker is disreputable I think that kind of tainted the film a lot for some bizarre reason but I cannot recommend it enough yeah so it premiered at Cannes in 2018 and just the reviews coming out were like one star they accused it of being misogynistic and of glorifying this character essentially even though the film is very Clearly, I think satirizing this sort of slacker lifestyle and very clearly condemning everything it's showing. And I think that actually the the fact that it was buried, because it was originally meant to come out in summer 2018, it just got buried. It didn't come out till spring and nobody really saw it. But the people who did see it really championed it and were really sort of surprised by the initial response, um, the initial reactionary response. And I think that it actually plays a lot better now because conspiracy theories have come a lot more mainstream. This is a film about a character falling down this rabbit hole of, you know, chasing a conspiracy theory to basically confirm these wild thoughts that he has convinced himself are real. And, you know, just look at the political situation. Just look online at Twitter. 
People are following conspiracy theories all the time to just confirm their own worldview is real, not realising that they have fallen down that rabbit hole. It's a wild satire of that point of view, and it plays a lot better now. And I think that any of the critics who just watched it thought, this is misogynistic, this is ridiculous, this is pretentious. We're just taking it at face value and not realising what it is satirising very well. You mentioned the response by critics. Victoria, you put this second, uh, your second favourite film of the year. (laughs) So are the critics just wrong? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, what I went into is three hours of incredible fun. Um, Honestly, not knowing what was happening at any turn, pretty much like the character. He was just walking into these situations that he had no idea he was getting himself into. And it was like fun to go on this mystery around LA, around Hollywood, which is always a great setting for any place um, for a film, that especially that's delving into this like, uh, I can't remember, like underground like truths and lies about the people around him. It was, it was, it was great. It's a great film. The setting definitely compliments, like the, the superficiality of the setting definitely compliments just like... <laughs> It's like kind of ongoing psychosis yeah, and the, through the film as well. And there's so many just fantastic scenes. Um, I mean, maybe my favourite scene of the year is a scene where Andrew Garfield goes, like the theory, his conspiracy theory leads him to this mansion where he meets a guy called the songwriter, who is this guy who has written every song ever made. And it's all part of an elaborate code of the media brainwashing people. It's a film that goes down rabbit holes within rabbit holes. And uh, it sounds pretentious, but the more you watch it, you just want, I want this to get crazier. And it gets crazier. It, it's, it's strange, um, but I really, really love it. Excellent. So that's some great recommendations from the team here. That is our number seven film, Under the Silver Lake. We are halfway through our top 12 films of 2019. And at number six, it is Marriage Story, by uh, directed by Noah Baumbach and starring Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. This is a Netflix release. You can see it from your, the comfort of your very own couch. And it's quite a late release, I think. I think it was only put on Netflix December November. December the 6th. Oh, December. December the 6th. So I've just seen this myself. I've got some fans of the film in the room. Um, Alistair and Mark are here, and Emma is also here. Um, Alistair and Mark, you both put this film as your film of the year. Tell us why. Well, I've never been married. I should, I should, you know, just put that out front. Um, and I'm not like the biggest Noah Baumbach film in the world. Some of his films I have really enjoyed, some of them I haven't. And they're a very big tunnel inconsistency. Like sometimes he makes quirkier films like Francis Have or Mistress America. And sometimes he makes really cynical films uh, about the middle class, quite like uh, The Squid and the Whale. And Marriage Story has elements of both, but it sort of strips away the cynicism and is very much a heartfelt character study of uh, this couple divorcing. It doesn't take sides uh, and it just very brilliantly articulates the struggles of a divorce battle between two people who just realise they're not right for each other and they don't hate each other in any way, but how the system, the legal system, is essentially forcing them to be against each other in order to you know provide a stable home for their child and it's just it's a quiet character study but is incredibly moving and i cried at least three times i would have to say and if you know how cynical i am you know that that is a major achievement definitely um so yeah it's my second favorite film of the year after cats um but as i have not seen cats at the time of this recording it is currently my favorite film of the year um 
I think a lot of the talk about this film uh, is about just how uh, you, you say it's it's it, it, the study of this couple who are going through this divorce and how it's it's about the fact that they just aren't right for each other. There's no blame anywhere. Um, how, how does that work as a storytelling piece, Mark? Uh, I, I think it works extremely well. You know, I, I like unlike Anister, I have been married, and funnily enough, I actually got divorced this year. Uh, my marriage just sort of petered out, rather than this one, which does have moments of drama to it. The, I think the brilliant thing about this is the, actually the first scene, because when you go through a marriage like that, and I, and I speak from slight personal experience, you have all those wonderful things that happen and the things which attracted you to the other person in the first place. And this film is entirely about the divorce. So what this film does in the first couple of scenes is outlines why this couple were so good when they were good. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson talking about the things which attracted each other in the first place, and you then discover they're doing it as part of a marriage counselling exercise. And it's it's the start of the, 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 the final stages of their own marriage. But you are so invested from that early point in why these characters were good together and it makes it all the more heartbreaking as you see the the various chances they have maybe to try and save their marriage as we go through the film and it just doesn't work out. I must also give credit to the three divorce lawyers in the film. Uh, We have uh, Alan Arkin... Uh, no, Alan Alder, sorry. Uh, Alan Alder, um, Ray Otter, and Laura Dern as the three uh, divorce lawyers. And thank you for giving me safe there, Emma, uh, who are, are all equally brilliant uh, at their various roles as well. Um, you know, it is surprisingly funny in places, uh, but it is incredibly emotional. And Alistair was by no means the only person crying at the screening we were at. Emma, I, I know it didn't feature in your... Top. It was almost in my top almost, three. Almost, yes. Out. And look at that. We, we, we're covering all the gamuts. I am, in fact, married and still married, so I can <laughs> recognise a marriage story. Um, it didn't make me cry, but I did really enjoy it. And I'm going to say I hang most of that on the shoulders of Adam Driver because I could watch his face. His face is so expressive, and I could watch him all day. And there is this brilliant scene at the end where he's back in New York and he just gets up in this bar and sings a song from Company, the being there from Company. And it's just... You suddenly see maybe what they've been talking about because there's a lot of chat about his career and her career because I believe it's loosely autobiographical based on Noah Baumbach's own breakup with Jennifer Jason Lee. So the whole idea is that Scott Johansson is this actress, an, an actress from you know who, who was big, they became less big, they've gone out to New York, they've done all of this, but um, it's very, it is very real. They have a they have a lovely natural chemistry and yeah, props as well. Like like Mark said, particularly to Laura Dern, who I think on the back of this and Big Little Lies, which I know is on a movie, but it's a TV show, is really putting in some cracking work for the older woman at the moment. And I, I should say that that scene of Adam Driver singing, uh, the screening that me and Mark were at, uh, some of the audience actually burst into applause at the end of it. It's but well, scene. yeah, it's yeah. a brilliant scene. Company, and I've yeah. just seen Company, and because also you have, you have another song from Company which keeps coming back as well, and it's it's just yeah, it's it's good. Really solid Netflix work. I, I think having all talked about our various life experiences, regardless of what's happened to you in your life, uh, you will get something out of this one. It really does understand what drives people. It's about people. and Adam like drives people. Oh, very good. Okay, I think that's enough on Mara's story. That is our number six film. Thank you, everyone. We are 
are uh, recapping our top 12 films of 2019. And uh, we're into the top five, everyone. How exciting. And at number five, uh, perhaps a surprise for some, but not the four people in the room with me right now, uh, we have Midsommar, uh, directed by Ari Aster, who also directed Hereditary. Um, I haven't actually seen this one, and I've got four big fans of the film in the room with me. They all put it into their top five films of the year. Lorcan, Rowan, Victoria and Simon. Simon, it was your second favourite film of the year. What's it about? What's, what, what is it? Um, Florence Pugh um, plays a young girl who's had a bit of a personal tragedy which she's trying to get out, get over. And she's invited by one of her friends, her college friends, to come down to a uh, midsummer festival in, I think it's Norway, in Scandinavia um, and as she goes out there as her boyfriend who she's been having quite a few relationship issues with and some of their other friends um, things start to get a bit weird um, <laughs> which is to put things lightly it's I mean it's quite similar to the Wicker Man in a lot of the idea mm-hmm. with the um, renewal and, and, and summer and the more pagan rituals um, following up from Arias's amazing and shocking hereditary um, this film is just—it's so visceral. It really does get um, get to the point. Um, it puts you in a weird sort of like mindset where you don't know what's happening or what's going to be happening next or why things are happening. Yet there's a complete logic to it, which you discover later, um, which brings it all together. Um, there is a warning that it is quite gory in a lot of places, and it really is. I said quite affecting when you do see it um, but none of it really felt that gratuitous because it is necessary and it is this kind of horror film so uh, are the four of you are you all horror fans are you, are you a normie yeah, of, so, so. of yeah. the genre yeah. how do, how... I'm not actually not usually so. you're not yeah. um, but you are a fan of this absolutely and so because I I'm not really a fan of horror horror films normally is this something that I should go and see Oh, <laughs> it depends on why you don't like horror films, if you see my meaning. If I you didn't like Hereditary. Right. I, I'm not sure that you would like this either. <laughs> this, this is sort of like, I, I thought of this as being like Hereditary, but in the daytime. <laughs> and it's very, but most basic, you know. Um, Victoria, you I know you are a massive fan of the, I the am. horror genre. Yes, what indeed. about Midsummer appeal to you in particular? Well, obviously the reason I want to go and see it is because Ariasta... Um, all of his works are incredible. Well, no, I loved Hereditary so much. This is why I want to go into Midsummer, and I'll probably see everything he's done next after this. Um, but Midsummer is just so dark and twisted, and um, essentially just. I mean, it's a massive smash for Florence Pugh as well. I thought she's incredible. I loved the relationships between all the characters, and just I just loved how it went downhill <laughs> essentially. And Lorcan, final word from you on why you liked Midsummer. Um, I, it is a very intense um, uh, relationship drama that takes place in the most unusual setting. Um, I will say, uh, apart from just recommending it uh, completely, I would say that they've released the director's cut on mm. a separate Blu-ray to the original cut, and I would recommend the director's cut. It gives you a lot more, and it um, the film very much hinges on how you feel at the end and I think the director's cut gives you a bit more of a hint about or it just helps you kind of like come up with a decision at the end. Wonderful recommendations from the team here that is our number five film of 2019 Midsommar.
And we are now into our top four films of 2019. And at number four is Booksmart, uh, directed by Olivia Wilde, a comedy about overachievers, Amy and Molly, who have serious FOMO and decide to celebrate the end of their teenage years with a rather crazy night. Uh, big fans of the film in the room. Uh, I've got Ashley, Emma, Mark and Victoria, who all popped it into that. Oh, sorry, Mark, you didn't, but I know you're a fan of the film anyway. Oh, no. oh, oh you did put it in your top ten. Yeah. My bad. Mark also put it into his top ten of the year. Um, Victoria, why? What? what is it about Booksmart that really appealed to you? What appeal? It's essentially, um, you see the trailer, it's absolutely hilarious, and then you go with a bunch of your best friends to have the best experience of probably my like cinema experience of the year, essentially. It's just, it's like a film that you just want to watch just with your the closest to you because it's so funny and you can relate to so many things that happen throughout it. And it's just a massive laugh. <laughs> it is good fun. It's a good fun film, but also... I just found that I related to, particularly to the two main characters quite a lot. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to, but that was part of the experience for me of watching it. I, I think the joys of films about uh, teenage characters sometimes are either that it's a teenage experience you relate to. Uh, for example, mid-90s did not make our, our top 12 this year, but I know a lot of people that saw it felt that that spoke a lot to their experience. Uh, I can't speak to the experience of being a teenage girl myself, but... Uh, for me, uh, this I think that the best of these kind of films uh, speak to the experience regardless. You you empathise with that experience even if it's not one you went through personally. Um, what I absolutely have loved over the years, particularly our John Hughes films, sadly of course John Hughes no longer with us, this feels like it's the perfect spirit of John Hughes films, the incredible humour, the great characters, the, the solid storytelling uh, and you know uh, Olivia Wilde and uh, the, whoever's been involved in this should keep on doing it frankly because that spirit lives on. So I was about to say, in the spirit of John Hughes films, is like probably one of the most best soundtracks I've heard this year as well. It just goes on and on, and it relates to every situation perfectly. There's been some really unfair criticism of Booksmart, I personally think, where it's being compared to other teenage sort of end of year films like Superbad, female Superbad, and they're calling it the female Superbad. What do what do we say in response to that, Emma? Well, I think that's super lazy. It's understandable, obviously, because Beanie Feldstein, who's one of your two main characters, is obviously Jonah Hill's sister, so there is a connection there. But um, for me, the um, connection, the chemistry between Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein as our two main protagonists was just one of the most joyous things I've seen on on screen this year their their friendship felt so real so unforced you know these girls who were like we've we've done it all we've worked really hard and then they realized the last minute that they could have they're so snobby at the beginning about all these guys and they're like well we're gonna be going again and everyone's like yeah we will be too and we've partied all year and it just i think i'm with victoria it was just a whole lot of fun and you know there is nothing wrong with seeing a whole lot of fun and i would never have thought that olivia wilde as in the actress last year maybe in life itself possibly the worst <laughs> film of the year could have directed such a pitch perfect com coming of age comedy really thank, good thank you and um, Ashley I know you, final word from you because I know you loved this film I loved it I loved the writing and it is Olivia Wilde did she write it as well as direct it I think but it's the one liners just she keep, didn't write it she didn't but no. well, well the one liners keep hitting you it's hilarious it's brilliantly different to most teen comedies because we're not watching vacuous teenage girls we're watching really intense 
intelligent, funny, witty, brilliant, soon-to-be-grown-ups. And it is a love story between the two best friends. And that is the love of your life at that point in your life. It's the most important relationship you've ever had outside of your parents, and especially for girls. And I don't think we get a lot of that because we're always pitting girls against each other at that age on screen. And again, really great, fresh representation of varying sexualities. And we don't really get that in the John Hughes era. We get that now. Thank you very much. Uh, That is our number four film of 2019, Booksmart. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats and we are going through our top 12 films of 2019. And it's very exciting now because we are into our top three films of the year. And here is number three. We are at number three uh, for 2019 and it is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his venture into 1960s Los Angeles with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie as its stars. Uh, Joining me for this film, we've got Emma, Alistair, Simon and Lorcan, uh, who have all seen the film and all liked it, I believe. Lorcan, number one. Yes, number one. I absolutely loved it. Um, Just to be brief, I think... I mean, it's Tarantino. His command of story is up there with David Lynch, uh, Stanley Kubrick. The film is eminently rewatchable. The performances are amazing. It's so entertaining. It's got the soundtrack of the year. Um, I, I, there's nothing bad about it. I can I can just say that I've rewatched nothing? it three times. No, I loved every I loved every element of it. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. It's like I say, it's so rewatchable. So it's very long. It, it flies by. It's so entertaining. And I would recommend everyone watch it. It's definitely the film of the year for me. I went to see it with a bunch of people. Um, and one of my friends that came to see it with me, when we when we left the film, she said it was not like a typical Tarantino film. I wonder if any of you also thought that when, when you left the cinema. What is a typical Tarantino? I think that's kind of... I, I don't think you can say there's a typical Tarantino film. From Reservoir I Dogs think through what to she... Django through to Hateful Eight through to this. I don't think it's... I mean, the ending is pretty typical. I loved it too. I absolutely loved it. That's yeah. all I'm going to say, loved it. But I think what she meant was that um, she expected the end to be the whole film. Yeah, it's um, it's his most laid-back film since Jackie Brown in 1997. It's mainly just a sort of a chilled-out character study until that burst of violence at the end. Even though the first time you watch it, you do have that dread knowing that it's set in the same era as the Manson murders, expecting that to happen mm-hmm. at any point. And... So for the first time we watch it, there is a sense of being on edge in the background, but it's really only on repeat viewings that it really unlocks itself. And you realise that it's actually just a very laid back character study about a group of different people who just uh, have always been on the cusp of success, but have never been able to fully grasp it. And there's a, a real sense of melancholy beneath it all. And yet it is unlike anything Tarantino has made recently. Um, but I don't think it's out of character. It still has the same love for cinema that is burning through all of his films. Uh, and yeah, I really liked it. And um, yeah, what what more to say? What more to say? I mean, the love of cinema, like you say, it really comes through in the film. I mean, I love that scene where Margot Robbie, um, as Sharon Tate, goes and watches basically herself in a film, and she's sat there really enjoying the Gets experience. Gets the dirty feet up on the. Yeah, the feet part I was not so much a fan yeah. of. But Tarantino I, loves some feet. But Tarantino does love done. feet. That's um, not kink shame, everyone. Just, <laughs> just want to come to to Simon, who's also seen the film, um, and uh, a lot of the talk again is about the performances, the the main performances in the film. What did you? 
you make of it? I mean, I don't know how Leonardo DiCaprio got another best performance out of his career. Um, he is just getting better and better in every film he's in. Um, Brad Pitt is just fantastically understated. Margot Robbie doesn't actually do that much, but she just fits the role perfectly. Um, I mean, some people have complained about her lack of dialogue and in the film, but it's not necessarily, you know, it, it works. It still works with her. She imbues um, herself. She imbues with such the sweetness. character. Yeah, and her, so sweet. And her role is vital to the yeah, yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is vital. yeah. But yeah, the performances are just amazing as always. You know, in terms of direction, pretty much everything about this film is top class. Top class. Put it on the poster. Thank you very much to everyone here. That is our number three film of 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we are at our second favourite film of the year and it had to feature somewhere. It is Avengers Endgame. Uh, I've got a lot of fans of, uh, well, I think, are you all Marvel fans in general? Pretty much. Well, I mean, but we'll talk about it as a standalone film as well. But um, joining me is Emma, Mark, Simon and Dave. Dave, I'm going to come to you because I know how much you loved Avengers Endgame. What did you love about it? Uh, the fact that it was a massive epic superhero movie that's silly, out of this world, but actually moved me to tears in a couple of points as well. It's just one of those things where I was expecting to enjoy it, but not that much. You know, I, I'll, I'll cry at some things, but the fact I was crying at this really kind of made me evaluate my choices as a human being. But also, it was everything I wanted from this kind of concluding arc on the saga all the loose ends that I wanted tied up were tied up. Everyone in it was absolutely smashing it out of the park for me. It was brilliant. Simon, uh, Avengers Endgame was also your top film of the year, was it not? It was. Um, I mean, the thing we need to remember about Avengers Endgame, it's the 22nd film in a long-running series for the last 10 years. Um, and as somebody who's enjoyed the previous 21 films, this has a lot to live up to to be able to finish in the right way and it absolutely nails the superhero landing on this film um it's funny it's a good old heist film for most of it it ties off the previous film uh, really quite quickly and has just got an amazing ending that just left any fan in floods of tears um it's an amazing film it's an amazing achievement amongst everyone involved and it well deserves to be probably number one film of the decade Wow, high praise indeed. Emma, um, I think this was marketed so well, the film, um, and it, it was sort of an experience going to see it at the For cinema. For sure. I went to take, um, it was my twin's birthday, so I went with 12 boys, 12 12-year-old boys, and me and my husband, and i not joking, it was probably the most complete three hours I've spent in the cinema. From the kind of downbeat ending following straight on from the, the um, Avengers... Infinity War, then just going through, and like both Simon and Dave have said, it completed that 10 years, which really has been, for me, like a whole landscape for me and my family, this whole 10 years has been Marvel, you know, that that, that just seeing it through, and it, they could not have done it better, and that goes for everybody in it, and the completion of various story arcs for characters who then aren't going to continue into the next MCU part was so sensitively and beautifully done, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. 
I'm starting to think I should have put this into my top ten. It actually. was my number one. <laughs> I forgot how much I enjoyed it. Mark, did you enjoy it? I did, but I, unlike the others who voted for it, I put it number six on my list. Uh, I think the thing that kept it from being number one on my list was that there's still a little bit of work to do on the portrayal of female characters. They still get sometimes the raw deal in this. I initially, when I came out, my instinct was it was a five-star film, and I did. I scaled that back very slightly. That said, though, I do think this film takes a huge amount of risks for a 20-second film in the series. Uh, it's not afraid to put people like Paul Rudd and Karen Gillan front and centre when they've been minor characters in previous films that you wouldn't expect. It does make brave choices narratively, whether or not you agree with them. And it also acts as a finale to 22 films but leaves you wanting more from the series overall. And can I just say massive props as well to the Russo brothers who I think with this and Infinity War have directed just, yeah, they, they, they to manage to, to corral all of that talent and all of those characters into these two films, just brilliantly done. And um, uh, one thing I, I just want to quickly ask is I've not seen all 22 of the, the Marvel films. I sort of missed out a lot of them and still manage to watch this and take it as I mean Infinity War is probably important before it but you don't need to have seen every single Marvel film to enjoy it am I right am I wrong you could right. probably drop in on some of the unique ones I, I would recommend going to watch Captain America the Winter Soldier just because it's brilliant but <laughs> at the same time there's a few where I don't think you need to see the first Ant-Man film you could probably go into the second Ant-Man film and it would still give you background you need you don't need to have seen all the Iron Man films for example but I do think watch Infinity War in fact watching them as a double bill I think would be the perfect way to spend your Christmas day <laughs> excellent excellent recommendation although Christmas has happened New Year's Day New Year's <laughs> Day um, so thank you very much everyone um, a, a very popular film for our reviewers that is Avengers Endgame It's our number one film of 2019. We're about to talk about it. Can I have a drum roll, please, from the room? And our number one film of 2019, voted by the Bums on Seats reviewers, is Knives Out. Knives Out is the number one film of the year. Rowan, you loved it. Tell us why. I did love it. I think um, alongside one of our earlier films in our list, this film oozed quality throughout its entire production. The production design, the acting, the script, the directing, everything was just top quality without being sort of flashy or over the top. It was just absolutely perfect filmmaking. I love a whodunit, as I talked about two weeks ago. I love a Agatha Christie, and this was a really sort of, I don't know, it felt like an inheritor of the Agatha Christie crown. It was just... A, a wonderful cinema experience. And props to Ryan Johnson, who is the director. And is he the writer as well? Yeah. yeah. He is. Um, I know we've got other fans of the film in the room. Mark, you are one of those. I am, and I, I would claim myself to be a Ryan Johnson fan for his whole career. I loved The Last Jedi. I loved Looper. Um, even The Brothers Bloom, uh, the scene where Rachel Weisz is talking about her hobby of collecting hobbies. He's just so incredibly inventive. Uh, and what he does here with the whodunit genre makes you guessing uh, through the first chunk of the film as to whether it even is a whodunit or not, because he, he, he does take you off at, at tangents, keeps you guessing what's happening, 
brilliant cast, uh, all having huge amounts of fun with this. Uh, I, I think it must have been so enjoyable to be on set making this film as well as actually watching it. Uh, and I do hope this is not the last we see of Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc and his incredibly ridiculous southern uh, sort of New Orleans accent. But powerhouse performances from the entire cast, I think. Um, Ashley, I think you, you've seen this one as well, haven't you? And I still love this one. It was, again, I, I mark films by how much I remember them afterwards. That's a really big point for me. And I would watch this again. I loved all the characters. I love the story. And it's one that I would like to rewatch because I like going back in the whodunits to see where the clues were dropped and whether I should have figured it out earlier. And I probably should have done, but yeah. <laughs> I have rewatched it, and on the second viewing, it holds up so well, mainly due to the amazing cast. Um, if anything, on the second time, it is so obvious who the who the person is. Um, but I completely missed it first time round. It is such a great whodunit, but it does work. You can watch it again and again. It's going to be an annual film. I can already feel it. Um, it's just brilliant. Um, yeah, and uh, just to go back to Ryan Johnson, I think what Ryan Johnson is really good at doing is he's really... He studies each genre he makes a film in. Like, his first film, Brick, was a noir film uh, set in modern day. Uh, Star Wars is, obviously, it's a Star Wars film, but he subverts the expectations that you'd get uh, from that in The Last Jedi. And here, he, he's clearly studied the murder mystery very closely, and it's everything that you want from it, but it's, at the same time, it's a very good parody of the genre, and it's a very funny film that works both as a parody and as a very good example of the murder mystery. And, yeah, the entire ensemble are just on the top of their game and Daniel Craig should only do comedies from now on. <laughs> this is my theory. After Bond, just do comedies, Daniel, please. Yeah, I mean, I loved it as well. I think actually the standout for me, Daniel Craig was awesome, but Ana de Armas as uh, Marta Cabrera, who's the maid for the family. She's also front and centre for pretty much the entire film. And she really holds it together, I think, more than anyone else does. It's a powerhouse performance from her. Because we're throwing that phrase around and I like it. Mm. <laughs> um, showering the praise on the film, I think. I think everybody loved it. I know, you know, it is just uh, wonderful. I think it's the most entertaining experience I have had at the cinema this year. Um, is everyone happy about this number one choice? Are we all? Yeah. I know you are, Rowan, because you put it as number one yourself. <laughs> but is it is a is it a good choice to round out the year? I think it's a film that anyone could watch and enjoy. Obviously, it's. I mean, in the screening I was in, there were children in there, and they seemed to enjoy it. I wouldn't recommend it for small kids, but I think anyone would enjoy this this film it, it's not something it's not like a star wars where you know you have to be a fan of a genre i uh, would also say on this i i do talk to a mix of people those that love art house cinema and blockbusters equally and some people that want to go to the cinema just to be entertained i almost felt like standing up and turning to the the audience for this one and going are you not entertained <laughs> because it is pure uh, popcorn adrenaline it is just fantastic entertainment if you want to go and have a good time in the cinema don't look any further wonderful I, th I think I think we have to stop there but I think we could talk about how wonderful the film is for ages all of our top 12 films we had such variety um, it's been a great year for cinema I think and uh, thank you to everyone in the bums on seats team uh, for this year, for everything, for all the shows. That's our top 12. Hope you enjoyed it and Happy New Year. To play us out, we have More Than This by Roxy Music, which is from the soundtrack of our number one film of 2019, Knives Out. I could feel